In our thoroughly saturated, hyper-connected digital age of emails, texts, IMs, and DMs, the act of writing a personal letter with actual pen and paper has come to symbolize slower communication in slower times. Is it a lost art? Well, the act and intention of letter writing is an ancient and deeply personal and meaningful practice. St. Paul wrote to the Greeks and Romans to tell them how to live their lives. Romeo didn't get that letter about Juliet faking her death, and you know the mess that happened because of it. A lover breaking up with their partner has been known to send a Dear John letter, a term popularized during World War II. Elvis Presley kept getting return-to-sender replies to his pleas. Pat Boone wrote love letters in the sand. Lonely men have been known to sit right down and write themselves a letter. Whether you're the writer or the reader, a handwritten note sent in the mail can help articulate feelings you never knew you had. And it's certainly the love letter that is a perfect example of the power and personal nature of the written missive. Of all the letters we've ever had the pleasure to receive and tuck safely away, none are more cherished than love letters. There are paintings depicting the writing and reading of love letters that go back centuries. In another Elvis Presley tune, he croons that rather than originating from the tip of a pen making contact with a piece of paper, somehow the sentiments keeping him from feeling lonely at night came straight from the heart. In fact, he repeatedly got some sort of thrill from actually kissing his lover's signature at the end of the letter. Try doing that with an email. And it's not just what people say in their letters that makes us cherish them. It's that tangible, physical nature of it. It's also the choice of ink and stationery, the personal handwriting style, the loops of a flowy script or scrawl of a shaky hand, the flourish of a signature, the stamp chosen for postage. Their DNA is embedded in the paper. A handwritten letter is tactile and deeply personal. That's why we hold on to them, store them in boxes to reread as we sigh or smile, laugh or cry, hold them close, even sniff the page, or, like Elvis, kiss them to draw their author back to us. There is no delete file instruction on the envelope or on the missive itself, just a bunch of words and a scrawled name, and we love having them. Some of the most cherished artifacts of famous people in history are their letters. We travel to presidential libraries and history museums to study not only what they had to say, but the style of their script. It raises a question. Will there arise a similar fascination and a collector's market in the DMs, IMs, texts, emails, and other similar epistles of today's leaders, celebrities, and famous persons? Will they be collected in sanctified halls of granite and marble that people will travel to visit and examine while wearing white gloves so as not to contaminate their protected, cherished status? We'll see. Somehow a non-fungible token doesn't evoke quite the same fascination for me. In this new series we call Yours Truly, epistolary communication via various media is our framing device as we weave stories delightfully dark and deviant as you know is our want, dear listener. We begin our series with two letters intended for two familiar players in history, both penned and performed by our own David Linton.
Dear Homer, oh, please excuse me for being so informal. You know, you didn't mention your last name. Or is Homer actually your last name and I missed your first one? Or are you one of those celebrity types who goes by just one name like Cher, Madonna, and Prince? Oh, anyway, thanks for giving Mel a chance to read your book and consider adapting it for the next Mel Gibson production. I'm Mel's agent, and he directed me to respond to you. To get to the point, Mel really enjoyed your war story. Whoa, you're really epic, man. You got so many troops spread out over the field and trenches that we can barely keep track of them all. Oh, this is going to be bigger than anything that Coppola or Spielberg or Kubrick or even Ollie Stone ever put on the screen. One of the best ways you've crafted the tale is how you worked in some totally up-to-date and totally woke themes, even though it's framed as a period piece. You know, like that bit of bromance between Patroclus and Achilles? Oh, Mel can't wait to cast those parts with a couple of Hollywood hunks and get them to strip down for action in the tent. And when Patroclus gets offed on the battlefield and Achilles goes berserk to avenge him, We'll really see the blood flow and the body parts fly. Now, Mel is not sure yet which character he wants to play. He's thinking of doing Hector so he can lead the Trojans in the battle scenes. But he also thought of doing Paris, depending on who plays Helen, so he can get it on with her on camera. Or maybe Odysseus, since he's the clever one who comes up with the wooden horse scheme. Oh, hey, that horse is going to be quite a set piece. Better than anything they did with those dragons in Game of Thrones. <laughs> It'll be fun seeing how many actors we can squeeze in there. I hope we don't run into any sag after problems with that. There is one part of the plot that Mel was a bit concerned about. The idea that King Agamemnon would freak out so completely just because Menelaus' wife ran off with some visiting Trojan that would make him drag all his partners off the war just to get her back? Well, that girl would have to have some pretty special stuff going on to trigger that kind of reaction. Maybe you could work in some sort of uh, financial factor as well. Hey, how about if she managed to get him to sign over management of all his business interests, his gold reserves and his offshore accounts, that kind of stuff, without a prenup, and even have the other generals, you know, Ajax, Nestor, and that gang, also have stock in his companies, so that now Hector can get into all their trade secrets and access codes. Well, a lot of today's audience, at least the men who show up at the box office for flicks like this, can relate to that sort of motivation more easily than the idea that their chick is getting on with another dude. <laughs> anyway, give it some thought. Ah, and we need to discuss use of the name Trojans. We're worried about running into a copyright problem with the Trojan Condom Company they might own some restrictions on their brand. But maybe we could get them to tie into financing part of the film if we do some clever product placement. Like, maybe we have Odysseus using the product with one of the Greek chicks, which gives him the idea of building the big Trojan horse. Finally, we hear you have another hot property waiting to get the special Mel Gibson touch. 
some kind of road movie, but instead of taking place on the highway, it's on a yacht out in the Mediterranean with plenty of side stories of encounters with hot sea nymphs and monsters as the main guy strives to get back home to his wife. I think that's Ulysses, right? Sounds like there's a lot more possibilities for some naked action in this one. <laughs> Especially with that part about the wife back home having to hold off a slew of horny Greeks trying to get her to bed. Maybe you could include some sort of test or, or show of strength all the dudes have to perform. Like uh, lifting weights or 100 push-ups or, 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 or pulling on an old bow and shooting an arrow. Oh, lots of possibilities here for some close-ups of pecs and tight abs. Maybe we can get Ryan Gosling to do a cameo. <laughs> but let's put the war story to bed first. <laughs> so, let's talk. Have your people contact our people, and we'll set up some jaw time for you and Mel. We could connect at Sardi's, or out here in Malibu. Or, if you want to stay put, we could settle in at the Acropolis Cafe in your neighborhood. I understand they have a great salad with feta and olives. Mel does have to slim down for the next Mad Max sequel. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Been there, done that. But hey, you gotta pay the bills. And he's got those harassment suits coming up. So, bro. Let's make a movie. See you in Hollywood. Before a time when fame and success were measured by how many hits one achieved on a social media platform, how often a post was shared, or how often a video was viewed, before counting impressions and SEO analytics, before stanning was added to the dictionary, a celebrity or performer, or even a politician, could measure their impact by how much mail they received. Fan mail. But fan mail wasn't simply sent into the void of a P.O. box. The act didn't end at the curb. Signing the note, licking the envelope, affixing a stamp. All these acts were accompanied by a fantasy that the envelope would be handled by the celebrity. It would be opened. The note would be read. A personal connection would be achieved. And the biggest fantasy of all, the star would be touched so profoundly by the writer's dedication, it would elicit a reply. A bridge would be built. Perhaps the next time the star appeared near the writer's hometown, there would be an invitation to meet, to come backstage, perhaps to talk, or something more. It is said that hope springs eternal. Fan letters sure embody the truth of that cliché. Dear Mr. Poe, or may I call you Edgar? I feel I know you so well already. The Usher family told me about your visit before their house collapsed, how concerned you were about their well-being and their safety as things crumbled. And I was so sorry to hear about the death of your beloved Annabelle Lee. That was a really dirty deed her highborn kinsman did, making her come back to their kingdom by the sea. I hope that your visits to her sepulchre down there in the Jersey Shore bring you surcease of sorrow. 
Perhaps while you're there, you could stop at Atlantic City for some casino distraction or even get down to Wildwood for some time on the beach. I know it's probably not too bad sneaking into the tomb to lie by her side when the weather's nice, but it's going to get pretty nasty down there once the season's over and all the shops on the boardwalk close up. Maybe a change of scenery would be good for you. Perhaps a return to Italy to see if you could locate that guy who was telling you about all the good wines he had. Didn't he mention that he had a cask of Amontillado? I hear that's a very rare label with hints of ash and oak, especially if he has it from a good year. If you're lucky, he'll invite you down to his wine cellar. Well, be careful if it's damp down there. And while you're at it, be careful about saying much about what you've been going through. You know quite well that a telltale heart can get you in trouble. Just because you are dreadfully nervous doesn't mean that people should say that you are mad. Maybe it would be a good idea to bring along a lot of bells, more and more bells, 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 just in case you have to ring for attention. But eventually, you're going to have to get back home and clean up after all the damage that bird has done in your study. Sure, it's going to be hard being there with all those reminders of Lenore, that rare and radiant maiden. But she wouldn't want you moping around and using her as an excuse for writer's block. If you just got rid of that bust of palace that you stuck on a shelf above your chamber door, you'd be able to move on. And that stupid raven wouldn't have anything to perch on and would have to flap off as well. Where did you get that bust? And who the hell was Pallas anyway? What, was he some old friend or professor? And whoever taught that bird to talk like that? How tedious. A one-word vocabulary that he seemed to think fits every occasion. He sounds like one of those magic eight-ball games or a stuck record. Maybe if you gave him a knock, you could shake a new word out of him, something like lots more. Or just tell him, what a bore nevermore. That bird is not just a prophet, but a thing of evil, if bird or devil. And don't forget, it's never very productive to try to come up with new work when it's midnight dreary and you're just pondering weak and weary. Take a break. Try a quaff of kind Nepenthe. I hear that's a good potion for tough times. Anyway, I just wanted to say hi. And if you run into Ulalum in the next lonesome October, please give her my regards. Your friend, fellow poet, and comrade in verse, David Linton. Dear Homer and Dear Mr. Poe were penned and performed by David Linton. Fireside Mystery Theater is produced by Gustavo Rodriguez and me, Ali Silva, for Fireside Mystery Productions. The intro music for this episode was composed by Nico Slater. Liz Leiser is our operations guru. Casey LaForest is our social media maven. Faith Johnson is our production coordinator. And Jason Graves composed our FMT theme music. I manage our audio production, post-production, and sound design, with additional sound design by Ricardo Delgado. Hey, would you like to listen to our episodes without the ads and
and help support us at the same time? Become an FMT Patreon patron for five bucks or more per month and you got it! We have all kinds of rewards at different levels, plus a peek into the mind and collections of our very own head writer, Sylvan Sandivar, with his weekly missive exclusive for our patrons. Go to patreon.com slash fireside mystery theater or follow the links from our website to check it out. And to our current fabulous patrons, we could write a million love letters to you and it wouldn't be enough to express our immense adoration and gratitude. Thanks for keeping us going. If you like what we do, rate us and review us. I guess even if you don't like what we do, you, you can let us know. I mean, sure, we are super hungry for positive feedback, but we are open to the constructive criticism, too. Always learning and growing, baby. Coming up next from Fireside Mystery Theater is more from our Yours Truly series. First up is a three-part miniseries within the series known as The Archives of Hand. Dear listener, be sure to mind the shadows. Yours truly, Fireside Mystery Theater. Fireside Mystery Theater.